Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. So welcome to today's episode. I'm Dr. Shabnam Berry Khan and today's topic is um, a topic that I think will make a lot of sense to a lot of us out there. We are thinking about pain and its relationship with trauma, um, which I think is going to be an issue that a lot of us can relate to with the personal injury work that we do with our clients. On a very simple level, trauma and pain have um, similar impacts on the sort of nervous system. But I feel that as a psychologist and a case manager working in personal injury, I do know that it's far more complica- complicated than that and, a very, and very complex in how it presents. And understanding and managing pain can, make, can be one of the single biggest game changers for our clients, particularly um, those with chronic circumstances. So today, I just wanted to think a little further about that with two psychologists um, who do work specifically in pain, Dr. Melanie Lee and Dr. Alan Bowman. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's good to talk about a topic that we uh, talk about a lot, Alan, don't we? (laughs) We do, yeah. Very excited to be able to have the time today. Yeah, well, I know that pain and trauma um, is uh, something of real interest to you. So maybe, I don't know, each of you, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your journey into specialising in pain and trauma. Yes, absolutely. So uh, this is Mel here. Hi, everybody. The journey for me began with a real interest in how all of these wonderful psychological theories that we learned at undergrad and went on to specialise in clinical psychology in our doctorates, could be applied to situations that maybe weren't that immediately obvious. And for me, that was in physical health settings. The idea that you could make somebody's life better, despite their significant injuries or other difficulties that they were experiencing. And as you've already alluded to, the complexity of that presentation often is something that doesn't have a straightforward answer. But to me, the challenge of that and where psychology and all of our related theories that we now understand about trauma can feed into that was a real eye-opener. And when that was applied within the pain services that I started working in, the benefit of working within a team of individuals, so as many people will be aware with NHS provision in particular, It's very common to have a multidisciplinary, or Alan can probably speak more to this, the concept of an interdisciplinary team that work Mm. very closely together, that all offer a different component part of the story to the help and recovery of the individual. And it was the working together of that I learned so much from, and it was such a satisfying experience to be able to contribute in that way across a range of both one-to-one and group interventions. So, um, Alan, I don't know about your journey because we met actually in the pain service, didn't we, in the Durham-Chesley Street area. So Alan and I crossed over and we've been working together in private practice since about 2018, ever since. It started with trust psychology, but with Alan and our other colleagues' help, 
we've been developing a specific trust pain management service that offers this interdisciplinary team with quite mm. a different focus. Yeah. yeah. Alan, tell me, tell me about you and how you, you know, you've been involved. So you've been involved since 2018 with trust pain management. So I actually met Mel um, in my very first job as a qualified psychologist. <laughs> um, so I'd, I'd recently qualified from uh, my clinical psychology training and got a job uh, in a local pain management service, um, which is where I met Mel. And I think the thing that really drew me to pain, first off, was an interest just to undergrad, really, and learning a bit about the models and the theories. But then in practice, actually, it's an area that really makes you stretch your therapy muscles a lot. You have to draw on every single dimension of your clinical psychology training and learn about how other professions work and work together in that team approach, really, that Mel's just mentioned. And that's just really rewarding. It, it never, it's never a dull moment. <laughs> definitely and it's making me think as you're talking Alan that um I don't know about you but I was actually warned off applying for my job in pain yes, because it, yes, it can be quite were you because it, it's quite a common experience and I don't know if you can speak to this Shabnam with your colleagues as well that when it comes to the complexity of chronic pain in particular and just the sheer distress of being mm. with somebody that is in agony at various different points across their body or across time with seemingly no immediate solution is mm. an area that a lot of people found too difficult to want to spend a lot of time in or were unsure about the direction. But as Alan's saying, it's the it's the satisfaction of what you can offer to what often feels a hopeless situation from the outset yeah. makes it That's so rewarding. That's really interesting. And yes, I can imagine that you would have to have a particular disposition to be able to, to support people with extreme and chronic pain presentations, for sure. So I can imagine that, yes, the fact that you went for it regardless and are still working in it and now are working <laughs> with people who are person, you know, have a personal injury. I mean, that to me, you talk about um, kind of working with others. I mean, this, that's the ultimate sort of setting in a way. Personal injury is a, is a very systemic well, it, 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 there's a big system around our clients. Absolutely, there is. And so the, the need to be able to bring a sort of relationship understanding of these, of these team dynamics, we found to be really important. Mm. And it is interesting, as you say, that it seems to be a certain type of person that gets drawn to this work. But we, mm. uh, Alan and I seem to find that when we speak to colleagues or when people have joined our team, the ones that are passionate about the pain are really passionate and the ones that don't um, want to work in that field or are specialists in other areas are quite clear in their desire not to work with pain. So it really mm. is owning where your interest in that comes from. Um, and there's a, a point I wonder if a lot of case managers and solicitors might be able to relate to that when you're with someone in pain, because it's such an unbearable experience for everybody, it is very tempting to turn away from it or jump to a conclusion or a solution very quickly, get treatment mm. underway, because we hate seeing people in that much distress. And every single one of us has been in acute pain. And I think the this, this statistics are from certain levels of auditing, you know, about 30% of 
men and 37% of women across England experience persistent chronic pain. That wow. it's, it's a very common problem that um, people put up with, particularly people think about neck and back injuries or headaches. Mm. Um, and we know enough now. The therapies are there. The team working is there to really make a difference and alleviate that suffering. It's, yeah. But you have to, as a clinician, be prepared to sit with pain and be in touch, I have to say, with your own level of pain, be that the combination of the psychological and the physical and yeah. the spiritual and the social yes. elements to that. Holistic um, approach, for sure. Yeah, because um, to be able to do that is to offer the client the, the greatest part of yourself as well and be able to acknowledge and validate is such an important first step in that relationship building phase. Absolutely. And, and coming back to that statistic, I'm, I'm sort of blown away by that. 30-ish, 35% on average of the general public experience this, chronic pain or is that this, personal injury specifically? No, it is more of a general population statistic. This comes from a study from Bridges in 2011 suggesting right. that in England, when they do a survey, 14 million people report some level of persistent pain. Now we have to think about what that means because mm-hmm. the definition of chronic pain can vary, but it's tends to be a pain that once the initial injury has healed is still causing significant suffering at least 12 weeks after the injury has been sustained and the the healing you would have hoped would have led to a level of biological improvement by that point. I mean, Alan, you might be able to chip in there about the definition of pain. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, International Association for the Study of Pain have got... um, kind of a fairly recent definition that, that speaks to what you said there Mel but includes this idea of it it's it's kind of existential in a way as well it, it includes some aspect of existential threat and that the person can't perform or, or do what they maybe did in the past in some ways the 30 percent number is you know perhaps an underestimate as well I think it's probably bigger than that I know there has been some data uh, in recent years it suggests up to half of the UK population um, experience long-term pain and if we look at um, personal injury or well traumatic injury in particular there's some data from Canada it's all over the water but suggesting that about 15% of people who have a traumatic injury um, will go on to develop chronic pain so if we think of it like that in terms of you know what case managers might be dealing with in their career they're going to encounter this at some point. That's so interesting because you're you're right. Personal injury, there has been a trauma. One, you know, that's yeah. that's the that's the reason that the, the you know the people are in the the situations that they are in, and clearly there is a big link between trauma and pain. I mean, I in the introduction I sort of suggested that the nervous system responds similarly. I mean, I don't know from as a pain expert as you you both are. Is that is that true? Is that the, the the you know is that a mechanism by which pain and you know pain and trauma can can respond similarly? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, silly question to ask experts in some ways <laughs> when we've got on a time budget. Yeah, no, uh, Alan might want to jump in um, here as well. But what it makes me think about is we're talking about these statistics of pain. Is we're making 
um, some assumptions here, aren't we? When when surveys like this are undertaken and people talk about pain, our automatic reaction for the vast majority of us is to think of that as a, a, a sensation in the body that hurts. Now, even when you think about that in relation to movement that hurts, emotional pain or pain that has been triggered by a perceived threat or difficulty within our relationships or social context equally hurts. I mean, who has not been in a place of heartache or grief when you feel like your stomach is being ripped apart or you're so overwhelmed by stress that your head is exploding? And we talk about this in our general vernacular, don't we? I've got he or she is a pain in the neck or um, something else just, just getting on my back. So the the tendency that we have to split the physical and the mental is actually a problem in treatment of pain because we need to look at it so much more holistically and why an integrated team working together have real expertise in being able to apply a different lens of understanding to what the client is saying and feeling and what their movements and body language and facial expressions show as well. But going back to that question of trauma, we do know the in a fundamental impact on the brain and the nervous system that trauma, when we talk about trauma, we're talking about any significant event that brings perceived harm to an individual. Now, that could be a car accident from a personal injury perspective, but all of us have had moments in time in relationships or in early life experiences where we've experienced something very distressing within the context of a relationship and for us to feel whole integrated individuals we have to feel safe in connection with others and we know that trauma fundamentally disrupts that safety so the the parts of the brain that detect threat and danger because of course we're designed to survive and we're designed that our nervous system has to pay incredibly close attention to anything that might threaten the system, then due to that sort of perceived threat, the signals coming into us will be interpreted through those lenses. Hence why the more trauma that we've had, the perception will shift in what's coming in now as whether this is a, a threat that needs to be actioned upon. And as you said, personal injury and accidents are traumas in and of themselves so at this moment in time the pain that's coming from my back or leg or arm is a threat to my system and my sense of safety and ability to be who I want to be in the world therefore that is going to hurt on multiple levels Mm. and that's different to psychosomaticism or is that technically the same thing it's a really good question because if you think about how people come to have chronic pain, you know, for, for some people, there might be a really clear cut explanation. They might have been in an accident where they have nerve damage and they've got neuropathic pain. And that answer is really clear. Um, or somebody might have a diagnosis of, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis and they've got chronic pain related to that. So that's very kind of clear cut. But there is a big chunk of people who don't have the luxury of that clear answer so they might have chronic pain but they're not quite sure why and the tests you know the scans the assessments don't show um things that you know show physical changes to the body so there is a you know 
if you think of it in DSM five terms, which I, I know as psychologists we 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 well I steer away from a little bit um, in terms of pigeonholing people, but um, things like somatic symptom disorder come to mind where the, there's physical symptoms, but they they don't have kind of um, that kind of medical diagnostic evidence underpinning them. It's a it's a huge. I mean, I think we could spend another podcast just talking about that. But just just um, I, I think it comes back to trauma in my mind in this idea mm. that actually trauma is not a psychological thing. It's not a biological thing. It's both. You know, if we think about even down to the immune level, you know, people who've had significant trauma, their their immune system can change its behaviour. So there's, there's just so many things that are mind and body and they're both, they're not one or the other. Um, and I think that's true for, you know, all chronic pain presentations, however they've ended up getting it. You're raising yeah. such an important point, Alan, about pain in general, because it's possible for us to think about pain in the context of trauma. But there was a fantastic article called The Psychology of Pain written by um, a psychologist that a lot of the audience may have heard of before called Stephen Morley, based in Leeds, around, I think it was 2008 time, where he just talks about the normal reaction, the, the normal reaction that a person who experiences acute pain will have. And of course, we've talked about how that can go on to develop to be chronic pain. But effectively, he had a really interesting theory that there are three main problems that pain causes to human beings. The first is that it interrupts what you do. So all of us have had a niggle for a few days or a more significant injury that's lasted a long time that may have fully resolved or maybe partially resolved or they're still living with. We know that it interrupts what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. So you're in the middle of a task or an activity or your attention's on something and you cannot complete what you're doing because pain interrupts that attentional process and because pain comes from that point of threat to the system we have no choice but to attend to it you can't these ideas that you can distract yourself from pain are really not Mm. thinking about the the primary need that the brain has to attend to this level of threat now you can absolutely turn that volume down and there's ways that you can retrain the system however it's not just a case of simple distraction The second point that Murley made was that pain interferes. So as well as interrupting, Mm. you then can't plan for things. You can't make the usual social events, attendance, or uh, be clear with your boss at work about how this is going to impact upon you because it interferes with your usual activities and routines. And that really shifts things for most people. And then the third point he made is that it changes our identity. And for a lot of clients with chronic pain, I'd be interested in Alan's thoughts on this, but it's the identity shifts that we do a lot of the work with in terms of readjusting back to what feels useful yeah. and purposeful in life, how what activities are meaningful again. So pain interrupts, it interferes, and it changes who you believe you are. You move from a place of, I am a productive worker in society, or I'm a busy mother, or an active father, to that is not who I am anymore. And that's a real catastrophic situation for your poor psychological mm. well-being and needs a lot of careful thinking through. And that's not even when you're thinking about this becoming chronic. That's just in response to pain in general. 
Yeah, that, that, that last point, Mel, about the uh, identity is just such an important one, I think, to, to really hold in mind that when somebody is managing, you know, long-term pain, and particularly in a case management context, I guess, if they're going through a legal process as well, everything becomes about their symptoms sometimes, you know, the, the dealing with the pain every day, maybe medication, maybe interventions from a team like us, maybe a litigation process and emails from a solicitor. And it, it's so, and I hear this a lot um, in the early stages of work, you know, it, I feel like I've lost myself. I don't feel like me. Um, everything is about this pain. And I think some of the best outcomes, and it's the area that I, I find the most rewarding really to, to, to see happen in, in therapy work is when a person feels like them again. And that, that might involve some grieving for some stuff that, that they have lost, or it might involve reclaiming areas of their life that they thought they'd lost, thought maybe they can get back in somewhere. But just as important is the, the growth area and actually what can I do that's completely new that is still true to my values. Mm, that's really interesting. And I think from a, a case management perspective, that can be one of the trickiest areas to think about who are you now and um, how can we work with this extra part of you that has developed as a result of this injury. And this raises such an important point about treatment focus and the role of formulation, which I think you may have spoken about before in your podcasting, Shabnam, about the, the role of formulation yeah. from a psychology perspective mm -hmm. in, in coming up with the answers to the questions about how did this start? What's maintaining it? What's being a predisposing factor or a protective factor here? If we do our comprehensive assessments, and that's so much easier to do when you've got a team around you that are focusing on different elements of that presentation as well, and you really hear the impact on the life of the client's story and what's happened since their, and before their injury that's, that's led to the pain difficulties, then the formulation can help drive the treatment protocol and goals because you're identifying not only what is possible here or what, what's the priority to this individual, and it's going to be individual for everybody. Every formulation is bespoke, of course, but we're also then focusing on and naming from the very beginning what's going to make this challenging for you. What are the barriers? And one thing we can absolutely speak to is that previous traumas or situations mm. where the injury itself has been a trauma, that in itself will create a certain level of, of barriers in the mind and in the body that need looking at. And we need to remember that some of the interventions that seem to be the case for a pain service to offer might be quite surprising to some solicitors and case managers when we think about a lot of the focus of the work, particularly when you bring in occupational therapy roles and physiotherapy roles, mm. is about changing as much of the sensation and volume of the pain as you possibly can through the right combination of fatigue and sleep and management of all of the symptomology and getting the medication balance right, but also looking at the wider impact. So there's lots of relationship working, activity building. Sometimes the biggest change I've seen in people was when they start communicating really effectively with their family members. And you wouldn't automatically, well, I wouldn't anyway have thought this when I started working in pain, that some of the things that make the biggest difference are not direct manipulation of the physical sensations. Mm. 
it speaks to the biopsychosocial model, doesn't it? And looking at it in the context of what that person needs at this point in their life. Yes, definitely. And ultimately, no one clinician will be able to effectively address this issue for our clients. That so so what what are the strategies then? What what should we as personal injury professionals be looking at if we're thinking about it being multifaceted? We're talking about the mind body connect rather than a divide. So it's not looking at it as a, a mental emotional thing or a physical thing. We're not talking about you know just and we're not talking about something that's uh, you know we're talking about something that's real. It's not sort of malingering sort of symptoms. This is, this is a real example. You know, these are real symptoms that people truly feel. But unless we tackle it and manage it well, we are left potentially with someone who is going to continue to struggle in their life. And that's the exact opposite of what tra- we're trying to treat, achieve, of course, for our clients. Absolutely, isn't it? And um, I think you're speaking to something really important about how we hear this all the time, how people are made to feel once they've reached the point of actually getting the treatment through, say, a medical legal claim. There have been so many different places that people may have gone to or mixed Mm -hmm. messages that, and that's not necessarily um, been done deliberately, of course. People might be going to different specialists to get their own opinion on what's needed for, for where their injury or pain is at, at that point in time. But you see it time and time again that it's not coordinated care mm-hmm. because the services are so overwhelmed and busy that they'll do what they need to do for that particular client in that particular outpatient appointment, for example. And there may be letters and correspondence sent across. But really, who's holding the bigger picture? And again, going back to understanding what the client needs at this point in time. So I'm sure Alan can come up with some other focus ideas, but the number one priority it feels when getting to know somebody who's been referred to our service is acknowledgement of what they've been through and giving time and space to hearing the details of what their narrative and understanding is, because by hearing that and asking appropriate follow-up questions and there's a lot more clarifying needed or we can often jump to assumptions and clinicians that well okay this part of you hurts we can go on ask the next question now but there's a huge amount of detail needed around how and when that injury shows up and I spoke to a client just yesterday that said one day is so different to the next Mm -hmm. it's so hard to give an average picture and ask you to fill out this questionnaire one day and I'll give you a different answer on the next day. So acknowledgement and validation is something that we can mention as throwaway concepts as clinicians because we all hope that we do it extremely well. But to really validate, we need to look someone in the eye and have an appropriate response in terms of the facial expression that mirrors that level of hurt to feel that you've really got where I'm coming from here. And then to, to feed back and have these reflective summaries. So starting from that pace of acknowledgement and validation, the amount of times that someone has come through a pain program and said, I just felt listened to, understood and believed, and then we could start doing the work. But that was such a big part of it. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that, Mel. I think there's something about the legitimacy, uh, sorry, legitimacy, someone's pain and the validation of their pain. And and I wonder, and I wonder, Shabnam, you you might have some thoughts on this too, but just in in the I guess the personal injury kind of domain, there is that adversarialism, isn't there, about is the person what's the person's injuries you know what's the extent mm-hmm. of the damage and can there be some minimization of that happening in the system yes yeah absolutely and um having the evidence for that and having something that we can pin the the, the symptoms and the experiences of our clients on is just so important and sometimes really absent it's really hard to know what that is mm. but it sounds like you guys have got a a potential answer to that conundrum when you talk about formulation, when you talk about, well, you say multidisciplinary, but you've also used the term interdisciplinary. And I feel like you're going to tell me what the difference is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, am, am I on the right lines? Am I, am I thinking that um, this is your, this is trust pain management's answer to some of these issues that we face? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting, you know, you, you might hear those two words and think, well, this is just semantics, really. Um, it's all teamwork. But it is, it's more than that, I think. And I, I do feel quite passionately about this. You know, you, we, we all hear the term MDT, don't we, um, yeah. at work? I'm sure we're all familiar with it, this idea of a multidisciplinary team. But one of the um, kind of big names in, in pain management, Dennis Turk, talks about this. This was back in the 80s, actually, but it's still being talked about today. This idea that actually an MDT isn't necessarily the most effective setup for a team um, in the context of the pain management. And when he talks about an MDT, he refers to this idea of all the professionals involved in a person's care, yes, being under one roof, but despite that, being disconnected um, either in the philosophy of care or their beliefs mm. about what causes pain or um, how they intervene or how they communicate, if, if at all they, they do. And actually, this alternative model of interdisciplinary teams is discussed. And in this kind of team, yes, we're all under one roof. Or maybe not in a pandemic, we're all on Zoom. Um, <laughs> but we, we share a, a coherent set of beliefs about what pain is how to help it. We trust each other because we know each other and work together well. We, we know where the boundaries of each other's work are and we, we're not afraid to challenge each other either. Mm. Um, and when you have that, you have a much more joined up experience for everybody uh, on both sides of the clinical encounter. And the, the client gets, gets better treatment um, they feel held, they feel listened to, they don't feel passed from pillar to post, which is one of the biggest complaints I hear from, from patients mm. in the NHS, um, uh, you know, who've got many long-term health problems. I've been to see a GP, I've been to see a consultant, I've been to see a specialist, and they're all from different places, and no one's holding the thread. Mm. Mm. That's such an important point, actually. I mean, if I think back to the, sort of the team cases that we've done to date, there's something so lovely about being it's it's hard as a clinician working with complexity of course isn't it we get to places in our own therapeutic interactions where you you can feel the frustration and the agony that the client's feeling and you want to make it better and rescue as soon as you can 
but you know that there are steps to that process. So to have one another to communicate with and pass information to and fro in an informed consent flowing way. So the client knows when they've told you that it will be passed on to the physiotherapist for the next appointment, for example, or the times when we do co-joint working appointments um, as part of our pain interventions. You're giving the same messages from two different perspectives often. And Mm. it's really helpful for, we've heard from our physio and OT colleagues to pick up on a relational aspect of the interaction, such as um, the explaining of a core pain management principle, perhaps, that that doesn't get followed through on. And there's a way by having a psychologist as a core part of that team that that can be understood and better yet predicted from the outset if we've got a good formulation. So with the particular client I've got in mind now, the importance of the ending was absolutely crucial. But because we were aware of that from this client's history from the beginning, we were able to feed that into the various points of review during the treatment. And this goes back to what Alan was saying about processing losses. One really key principle I'd recommend to case managers and solicitors working with clients with chronic pain is to have some very good explicit discussions about expectations and talk about what the ending of a particular period of input should mean or may involve, because we can have Mm. some very understandable but unrealistic expectations. And this goes back to kind of core early life experience as Mm -hmm. well. Um, You just want someone to make it all better for you. Of course. I'm thinking attachment as well. Oh, attachment. And we're not even starting to think about how our own parents reacted to to pain Mm. or to health problems. It might be that pain has such resonance in someone's life if it was part of a parent's presentation, for example. Did you get told to get on with it as a child? Mm. Were you taken to hospital? Were you given medication? All of that will feed into what you believe should happen with your care and treatment in the here and now. Mm. So to be able to preempt the fact that we're not going to be pain-free at the end of treatment because nobody is pain-free. We all will have situations in life where we will encounter niggles of pains or aches again. But what we do is understand and allow the body and mind to talk to one another, hear what the body's communication is through that pain and respond to that need appropriately. And Alan and I and the team have been having discussions more recently about how do you ensure that follow-up care happens into the community? Because Mm, that was often the problem that we experienced in NHS services, that even if someone had had quite an intense period of input, it would come to an end. And if that hasn't been discussed and preempted, people can feel very lost and left Mm. again, or because their pain might be better, but it's certainly not gone away. And um, other aspects of their life are still no better. So Mm. thinking about how... You can keep connections going, update and maintain improvements. That's all to be thought about at relapse prevention follow-up stage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And it's really interesting how how you've described um, managing expectations actually, interestingly, mirrors sometimes the litigation process Mm -hmm. of how it can feel a lot of our clients describe feeling like they're just left out into the, you know, effectively this sort of living real life or, or living life now without litigation and how abandoning that can often feel 
And I'm just thinking if trauma is linked to pain, as you've described it, then surely actually that's something that can link in with the concept of not actually being pain-free in the future, but it's about trying to think about all the different factors that con- can contribute to being in a better position than you would have been otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And moving towards a place of health and well-being, which is about connection yeah. and integration and just trying to repair the potential damage that has been caused from fragmentation. So one of the key findings from a lot of the trauma research and the, the way that the therapies have developed is at the point of trauma, the right and left hemisphere stop talking to each other. We we remember the sensations and the the feelings attached to what happened, but we maybe don't have the language for it. So there's mm. a huge amount of narrative and meaning making needed. And you have to respect the fact that everyone's interpretation and the meaning of their pain will be individual to them. Yes. And yeah. I think as clinicians, we're, because we maybe have heard about injuries before, we can be quite quick to jump in. So giving the person that time to really explain how it affects them And again, if you going back to core basics with, although we were talking about very complex situations, sometimes focusing on the necessities of life, like let's just get you sleeping well first. Let's just think about, do you really need to be walking up that flight of stairs every day or doing the school pickups when nobody else is helping you? Let's really look at what's going to make a biggest difference to your life immediately that would just ease things before we get into something more historic or deep. Mm. I think episodes of care are important to think about here. And that's why a really comprehensive, thorough assessment process is needed. Because Alan was uh, talking earlier with me about sometimes the thorough examination with some um, clients is really missed until much further down the line. Yeah. It's it's interesting how amongst my colleagues, I'm not sure that pain and trauma is as, and I know I'm coming from a psychological perspective, is as well recognised or as deeply recognised as they should be, given the uh, the impact it can have on people's lives. I think that there can be a bit more of a focus on maybe the more practical, physical progresses and, and um, advances that people can make. And that often doesn't result in the outcomes that people are wanting because it's seen in quite a, a sort of uni-faceted way, in a, in a sort of single discipline sort of way. I think it may be something to do with not really understanding what it is that is the pain, what it is that's going to fix. A bit like what you were saying earlier, it's quite hard to sit with all of that because it's unclear what to do with it. But then how it, um, and, and the same with trauma, actually, as well. So it almost is a double sort of uh, overseen issue, if you like, that feeds into each other, resulting in, in quite a, a lot then to have to deal with. But it just feels almost safer to just focus on something that is more physical, something that is more, um, it's, it's more, I suppose, friendly to litigation, if yeah. you will. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting, Shabnam, and it makes me think of this this cognitive bias referred to as yeah. commission bias, where we feel like we've got to give somebody something, or there's this idea of I think it's called gift exchange theory, where you know a client comes to us and the gift they give is their attention and commitment to the clinical encounter. 
But then we're left on the other side of that interaction. Well, what gift do we give? And, you know, if it's, you know, heart surgery, then the surgeon gives the gift of fixing the heart valve or whatever it may be. But, but in chronic pain, it's, it's a much more difficult thing to, to do. And I think the, it's understandable. And I've seen it a lot in my, in my time where a clinician will, will revert to the concrete and revert to the practical because that feels like a gift they can give. Oh, well, you've, you've turned up and you've showed up and you're committed and I can give you this drug or I can give you this um, set of exercises. And I'm not, I'm not dismissing those particular things because they, they are part of it for many people. But I think we, we need to get across the board, you know, as psychologists, case managers, physiotherapists, GPs, everybody, we need to get more comfortable with the uncertainty that chronic pain brings. Yeah, yeah, that's really and and is that what you do at Trust Pain Management? Is that that's obviously something that you have built into the model that you use? Tell us a little bit about yeah. how you do things at Trust. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what as you were talking there as well, I was thinking about is there are things that we know help pain management in general. So as soon as you can get that information across, that can be really important so I mean these might be things people have heard about in general so we often talk about it with the four p's and this can be Mm. part of a lot of group pain management programs that people might be familiar with in NHS settings if people at the end of their chronic pain treatment journey are pacing themselves are having appropriate rest periods doing what their body can tolerate but resting in between or meeting the needs as they're they're listening to it and they're prioritizing what matters to them and this is where um alan's got a lot of experience in the acceptance and commitment therapy and i know some of mm. your previous podcasts Shabnam, yes. act a lot um i um do some act work but i'm also sort of in cognitive analytic therapy territory and love looking at the, the mapping processes of what's happening in the room as well and the influence of the past on the present but the prioritizing based on your values and what's meaningful being able to plan activities just pre-think through and have had that really excellent communication with others around you so much can be achieved just from these really quite straightforward concepts including the idea of um the the core ability to just say what you need and ask for help from others and Mm. get that support because so many of us are ashamed to do that and shame is a, a very debilitating emotion that will mean that we'll we'll not ask for help because I should be able to to change my bed without hurting my back or I should be Mm. able to drive the car without getting a crick in my neck or Mm. it really aggravating stuff so to be able to help people get to those strategies and there is a lot of really helpful information out there I'm thinking off the top of my head about the pain toolkit and the work of Peter Moore that um, Alan's been in contact Mm. with there's a lot of resources online and that that case managers and solicitors and other professionals can point clients in the direction of that can get them a long way there. There are these generic strategies that can make a difference. Where I feel trust pain management can really make a difference is when case managers have tried those strategies or have suggested things that the blocks or the barriers or the difficulties seem to be really insurmountable what mm. that is speaking to is there's some unnamed process or repeti- sort of a repeating pattern happening in the dynamic there that's not being addressed. And that's something that we can certainly 
assess for and bring in through these, making sure that the, the assessment process, because our um, model as it works currently is when we do our initial assessments, we have the physiotherapist, the occupational therapist and the psychologist together. Mm. When that's possible with face-to-face, we will do so, but also on Zoom. The idea of having multiple eyes and, and hearing the story from different perspectives is, is crucial. And then once that report and the recommendations have been made on what we've heard from the initial assessment, we share that with the client and make sure that that narrative is consistent with what they understand it to be and that they've got their voice heard throughout that, the, the way that the report is written. Then mm. we're able to offer something bespoke to their needs. So we've almost got a lot of strategies that work very well, a menu of options that classic pain management programs are able to deliver. But the difference being it's formulation driven. So we mm. will decide with the client what they would like to prioritize and why and be able to name early on where we might get into challenges or difficulties and promote a certain order of things and that the, the greater the complexity the more it is that we're going to have to work on relationship and trust building before we can look at technique delivery. And presumably you get referrals obviously from personal injury referrers, case managers, solicitors, um, that's, clients that's, themselves I guess. That's right, Shabnam. We get um, a variety of different referral routes in. One question, though, I think you were alluding to when we had a conversation earlier as well, is it can be very difficult for case managers and solicitors to know exactly when a referral is appropriate. And particularly in our NHS experiences, it would be often the case that someone would have been around a lot of different services and we would see someone at the end of their journey, which is a Mm. real tragedy given how much you can help earlier on. So don't be afraid as a case manager or solicitor to reach out at a very early point. If there are indications that treatment is not indicated at a particular point in time, we can certainly feed that back. But often, if the initial needs assessment is done and there's an indication that an injury has happened but might develop into a chronic condition, then we might be able to preempt that to a certain degree by giving the right support earlier on. So we would always encourage people to reach out to us just to explore why something's not working as well. We, we're very happy to give some case consultation or some training just to think in general about the approaches and how and when to refer. Mm, very well, you've, you've probably bridged very nicely onto the, you know, the, the question that I ask everyone who, who guests on the, on, the, on the show. Three practical things for case managers, solicitors to use in their practice. I guess early intervention is is what you've just said, is, is part of that. Um, I could say one thing, it would be to, to try and unhook from this idea that it's the brain or the body, you know, because it's mm. both. That pain is a, a biopsychosocial thing. Um, so to have this dichotomous black and white view of, is it, well, is it a physical illness or is it psychosomatic? It's, it's getting really old hat that and quite old fashioned. And I think if people can start to think about how actually these two things are part of the same whole and we need to support people in a really integrative, holistic way, which, you know, case managers are front and centre of, aren't they? Because they have to mm. consider the whole client. Um, that will be my, my request and tip, really, um, to, to throw out the black and white thinking and, and acknowledge with the client that it's it's both yeah yeah and 
from a very practical point of view, I think going back to that point about validation and acknowledgement, it's very mm. easy to hear someone say they hurt and go, oh, that's, that's, that's a shame for you, and then move on to the next question. I would really recommend that when you're, especially when you're first engaging with somebody, really connecting with them on, the, on that meaning of the pain, because we need to be honest with ourselves. A lot of our turning away is because a client's description of their pain is actually very triggering to ourselves. And so to be able, the, the other huge benefit of working in a team is if anything is triggering or if, as Alan said, we can challenge one another, if something is happening, then we're able to catch it and think about what we might need in terms of our own self-care. Because what you, I've seen it unfortunately happen in different team scenarios when things get played out within the system that is really unfortunate, but is often just missed because it's not seen or understood. So to really just got to give someone the space, look them in the eye and to know and remember the last time you were really hurt and how that felt and just give that space and time to connect. The, the person will then move on to the next part of their story when they're ready to. Mm. But going back to that idea of being aware that pain interrupts and interferes and changes identity, people are dealing with this multiple times an hour, multiple times a day. You know, it doesn't go away. It it's a constant demander of attention pain. So it is utterly exhausting. Mm. And back to that point of addressing expectations from the beginning as well. That's such yes. a useful thing to be able to do. Definitely. A lot of, um, yeah. Mel, you just triggered a thought there that I think just really hits home in terms of what you're saying there, that it is exhausting, isn't it, being in long-term pain? And I'm aware, I've seen this recently, with the medical legal process, obviously there's, there's often lengthy meetings or discussions needed with the client there. And I just think really practically on the ground, being aware of that, you know, making sure that the client has a chance to take breaks and that the duration of these meetings is thought about uh, where possible. Mm. It can be little things like that that can, can make a big difference. Definitely. Definitely. Just, that's such a good point, Alan. Just to acknowledge to the client, is there anything that you need for this duration? It might be that people need to take medication at a particular point in time or need to yeah. use the bathroom. And these just being held in mind is so important, isn't it? That I've not forgotten mm. throughout this that actually you're, even as we're meeting, you might need to change posture or position in the chair because that is setting things off for you. And people are overly polite in these meetings, yes. aren't they? Someone will sit through pain rather than say, sorry, I need to stand up and move. So yeah. giving permission for that early on is something we do a lot of, particularly yeah. in the kind of assessment and therapy processes. Amazing. Amazing. And I, and I suppose when you, over, when you sort of overlay the sort of context of, again, litigation, barristers, solicitors, lots of people in the room, possibly everyone looking at you, despite that, how easy it can be to forget the needs of the client. <laughs> It becomes a sort of theoretical concept. Um, when they're right there in front of you, it's quite something as a case manager I, I, I found to, to be able to say that that's concept of permission giving, but you can see how it, how it links. Remind me what the four Ps are. Pacing, planning, prioritising, and... <laughs> Is it preparing? 
preparation sorry planning pre- <laughs> it's uh i think it's you, know, it, you, you it, mentioned three before yeah i did <laughs> i was it's thinking the... what was the fourth one did i miss it <laughs> no i think you're absolutely right what we used to do in our pain unit actually was call it it, it was the uh, i've uh, not helped myself by calling it the four it's the three p's the pacing planning oh. prioritizing and the fourth p often I would add as a cat therapist as Liz the process and really oh. thinking about as well as obviously the pain and thinking about practical things that you can do yeah. the um the process going back to what you said about the influence of attachment the way that people move speaks a lot to mm. what is happening internally so just to be curious about that And the transference, I know that's an interesting term, but what we mean by that in sort of psychotherapeutic terms is the way that you can be left feeling when working with somebody, when you're picking up on what's going on internally for them, Mm. can be very physical with chronic pain. So it could be paying attention to your own stomach churning, neck and and head tension, or if you're in pain yourself that day, how that's going to influence the interaction. Is a very interesting thing to be able to debrief and have supervision. And fatigue on. levels, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. Again, it's just making me think of very practical things about concentration and attention mm. ability. Just to be able to say to someone, like, have we written down the next appointment day, or are we? What are you holding in mind at the end of this meeting that you'd like to be able to do? Like, just being very mindful of what's yes. going in, because I say to a lot of clients that your attention you know whatever percentage of your attention and brain capacity is actually being taken up by your brain screaming at you to attend to this signal of pain there's very little left there Mm. now that mindfulness and various other things can do wonders in terms of creating some additional capacity by actually attending to the sensation and coming back to your breath so there's there's definite things that can be done but just again that permission giving of of course this is going to be difficult for you so let's think about how we can help sort of facilitate that and offer mm. some foundation structure well if I'm not mistaken you haven't given me three practical steps I think you've given me seven wow <laughs> well done <laughs> this is a, an example of bigger than the sum of our parts <laughs> <laughs> oh damn now this is fantastic you're absolutely right it's the integration isn't it of uh, multiple minds and thoughts coming together yeah that's amazing I'm so grateful to you for for being able to share some of your thoughts some of the ideas behind the model that you use that you've developed and some strategies of course for our listeners to take away with them if people want to contact you how can they do it how do we get hold of trust pain management service um or you individually each you are absolutely welcome to contact us via our website and we've got a a, a direct phone number of 0191 580 5870 which our administrator Catherine monitors we are in the process of rebranding and developing our website so watch this space there's some Mm. interesting exciting Mm -hmm. developments on the horizon but info at trust-pain-management.co.uk gets directly to Catherine or you can come through our sort of sister company of trust psychology because we do a lot of medical legal work there too mm. but the pain division is particularly for this the team approach that we've been sort of illustrating today so um, you can get direct contact with myself um, and Alan but I'm on Melanie 
lee at trustpsychology.co.uk. And we're on LinkedIn now and we'll be doing some more postings there. That's a good place to, Ooh, to yes. connect with people. I was going to ask about your social media presence, but LinkedIn <laughs> is a good place to be for pain, uh, for personal injury. Oh, brilliant. Um, Dr. Melanie Lee, Dr. Alan Bowman, thank you so much for your time, for your insights um, and your thoughts around two very, but one in particular pain, very uh, crucial aspect of our clients' experiences. So um, should anyone need to contact you, we know how to do that. But for now, thank you so much for your time and we will see you next time. Bye-bye for Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Before you go, if you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support. 